Hello and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is the DJ. How have you been, DJ? Oh, it's, it's been a fun week. Uh, I mean, well, this week has been a comedy of errors. Like, uh, where, where can we start? We have the presidential debate. Boy, that was a comedy <laughs> to watch. Nah, then what else do we had? We had uh, Boogie2988 having, having another episode of What Not to Do to People. <laughs> <laughs> and we just recently found out Trump has got COVID. <laughs> Along with basically everyone who's been around him in the past week. <laughs> oh, man. So wow. while that's ripping through the um Yeah, so that's ripping through the American political system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh I I'm still gonna say, even though the president having COVID it, it's it, it it's a funny thing. I mean, we I I don't wanna wish death on people kind of thing. No. But I still no, think I, I still it, think the whole boogie two nine eight eight thing is hilarious. <laughs> I think it's unfortunate. I think um everybody sucks here. So Boogie's got issues, obviously. <laughs> Keemstar you know was giving them a platform to um, for what was that guy's name? Frank. Oh, yeah, Keemstar was giving yeah. them a, a a platform for them to have a go at each other. And then Frank was sort of idiot who went to deep to Boogie's house. Like, don't <laughs> go and beat people up. <laughs> yeah, everybody sucks. Yeah. Well, I'm sure with all the recent drama, people wish they could go back in time and change it. And it turns yeah. out maybe you can. Oh! A uh, UQ student has released a paper, uh, Reversible Dynamics of Closed Time-Like Curves and Freedom of Choice. So two people, uh, Jermaine Tobar and Fabio Costa. And they've released this paper, which bloody complicated it. Um, Fancy maths and stuff, but the theory goes that if you travel back in time and try to change the future, what will happen is that the future will happen anyway. But whatever you do to change the future will, it'll even out in the end. So if you go back in time and kill your grandfather, someone else will be your grandfather. Isn't that similar to what happened with Futurama at one point? Well, he became his own grandfather, which is a bit of a different paradox. Okay. So killing your grandfather is the grandfather paradox. You go back in time and kill your grandfather. Who? Uh, so at that point, how did you ever get born? How did you, you know, how did you grow up? Go back in time and kill your grandfather. It never happened because you killed your grandfather. The other one, the future armor one, is the bootstrap paradox. Okay. So Dry went back in time and became his own grandfather. But if he'd never done that. Who was his grandfather? If you go back in time and create something that inspires you to go back in time or allows you to go back in time, who originally did that? You're in a loop. Uh, wait, so does that mean all these, all the time, tra- all those time travel movies like Back to the Future and um, actually, yeah, Back to the Future and um, Infinity uh, Marvel in- Infinity War, uh, Marvel Endgame, are they all wrong with time travel? Yeah, they don't match this. Um, this paper. I can't think of any movie off the top of my head that does match this paper, but the idea is that, um, so if you go back in time and kill your grandfather, someone else is your grandfather. You go back in time and try to kill Hitler. Someone else will Someone be else becomes Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's the experiment like- that so- Tobar gives hmm. is you go and try to stop coronavirus patient zero from getting infected. Either you catch the virus or someone else does. Uh, so it's kind of like uh, so, so it's kind of like one of those 
one of those shows where you're like, oh, if I kill one gangster, another one's going to be, another one's going to take its place, kind of thing. Kind of, yeah. Ah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And I think the reason nobody actually uses this as a plot, as far as I can tell off the top of my head, is that it's not a very satisfying story because uh, the time traveler can't actually impact the future. So the, you know, back to the future, the, um, it's a satisfying story because he messes up the, the timeline and has to fix it. In this case, messing up the timeline wouldn't matter. Um, someone else would become his father and he wouldn't cease to exist. With, the, uh, with this, though, this will blow away all the other, um, all the other theories that were in relation with um, relativity and time, and time travel and stuff, wouldn't it? Yeah. So the um, Dr. Costa has reviewed this paper and helped publish it, and says that uh, says that it should all add up. So someone else might have to come along and prove why this doesn't add up. But that's the way science works. Mm. But um, this is based on Einstein's theory of general relativity, so it does fit in with the existing model. Oh, this this also raises those interesting questions of like, is everything predetermined? And oh, this will this will raise a lot of interesting philosophical questions, like the whole predetermination and destiny. And well, you know, I actually don't don't really believe in free will. Free, free will is a myth. <laughs> yeah, so oh. everything you do is as a result of your past. Hmm. Everything that happens in your body is. You know, just the next step along in the chemical processes that occur in your body. So I think the universe is deterministic, possibly. Quantum stuff gets a bit wacky. So, you know, I'm not sure how that plays into it. Um, But on a macro scale, I think the universe is deterministic. I think that you don't have free will. You just feel like you do because whatever action you take is determined by the chemical processes going on in your body, which are determined by the previous actions you took but in the end it doesn't matter because it feels like we have free will you know i i get to decide what flavor of sushi i want to eat it all all adds up to feeling like i've got free will even if i don't yeah it also comes down to then also um taking into account like what consequences will will the universe have like let's say for example let's take your sushi example for example for instance let's say you you try um instead tuna sushi Okay, it's not like the universe is going to collapse within in the next thousands of years because you you discovered this sushi. I mean, it could butterfly effect. Maybe mm-hmm. me having that flavor of sushi that day stopped someone else from having their favorite sushi, and they were in a bad mood. So when they went back to the office, they um, had a go at someone, and that person was, you know, that person was depressed and went and killed themselves, and that person's grandchild. <laughs> was a scientist who was going to stop the universe from exploding. Oh, so then is... the universe explodes. <laughs> so in other words, no matter what you try, it, the universe will still explode. In this case, yes. Ah, uh, also taking this will also um, highlight the fact that cause and effect is a thing. Yeah, yeah. So kind of is that the cause of um, whatever it is that you do will have. Um, the cause of whatever event you try to change will recalibrate and still occur. Yeah. So, like I said, like I think the interesting part is the guy was talking about the coronavirus. You become patient zero in the. You would become patient zero. And I'm like, oh crap! So causality yeah. changes. Yeah, basically. Yeah. 
So that that being said, though, like let's say for example, so if I were to go go to the local Ferrari shop down here and steal a Ferrari, that 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 effect would not have, uh, that would not affect me in the long run, wouldn't it? It would just be like temporary. It'd be like just short term stuff. Short term stuff wouldn't affect me in the long run. No, it would affect you in the long run because you stealing a Ferrari would make you a criminal. Ah. Uh, uh- Okay, damn it! That's gonna that's gonna be interesting. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm not helping you change your identity again. <laughs> oh, come on, you did it for me once. Oh, <laughs> uh, but what's gonna? What, what, how do you reckon this will affect the science community? I don't think it will have a big immediate impact. I think it's um, more of an interesting, uh, just a curiosity paper. So Tobar does mention that, um, you know, finding a way to mix classical dynamics and general relativity is a holy grail of physics. But um, I don't think it's uh, his paper actually figures that out. I'm not 100% sure. Would you ever try it? Time travel? Yeah. That would armed with Um, this information? I mean, yeah. Nothing would change. So I'd get to go back and check out cool historical things without worrying about the butterfly effect. Hmm. So if if the universe recalibrates so that everything that did happen um, would happen did happen, then I would uh, I would be fine with time traveling because I wouldn't have to worry about um, messing up history basically. Yeah, but that's weird though. Like you know how they always say like, oh, if you disrupt one event and it would lead to another event and stuff, that that will yeah. prove that theory hold null and void, wouldn't it? Well, that's the butterfly that I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yes, this does um, negate butterfly effect, at least for changing the past. Yeah. It's entirely possible that uh, I'm not sure whether the paper accounts for it, but the future might not be set in stone yet until it happens from our perspective. So even though there'd be no way to know what what the butterfly effect caused, it would still be a... um, it would still be a butterfly effect, just that there'd be no way to tell what the what the alternative history would be. Hmm. But anyway, the um, none of this matters when you have a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Are you aware of the game Farming Simulator? Uh, vaguely, vaguely. It's a surprising amount of fun. It's a good sort of chill game, put on a podcast and chill. But um, the developers of uh, Farming Simulator, Giants, have decided to make it significantly less chill and created a eSports League. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, there is now eSports um, Farming Simulator. <laughs> and... Tractor manufacturers are sponsoring teams. <laughs> no way. No way. Are you serious? What? John Deere is going to come, come in and go, hey, we're going to track uh, spots of you guys with this eSports game. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine someone just going like, um, this eSports, to- this League of Legends tournament, now sponsored by John Deere for all your farming needs. <laughs> I feel like John Deere will probably stick to the farming simulator tournament. <laughs> but that is insane how there's like, th- that. now that you mentioned like farming simulators are going to join in, join in this venture. I yeah. mean, it's I mean, it's growing, but how is this going to affect the farming community? 
It probably won't. It's not a um, you know, it's relatively small at the moment. Uh, companies like John Deere sponsoring teams is probably not a huge part of their marketing budget. But this is a uh, one of those great stories that's just you know so out of left field. <laughs> Pun not intended. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading one of the articles they're saying here. Um, so one of the managers of public relations at John Deere saying the reason for John Deere's entry into esports are obvious. First and foremost, the attractiveness of the detailed farming simulator within the agricultural sector and far beyond. This is accompanied by the high level of acceptance of John Deere products in farming simulator and the ever stronger interlocking of the real with the digital world. Yeah, so uh, farming simulator actually has licensed vehicles, so you can buy your John Deere tractor. It Probably. also uh, has a fairly in-depth simulation, um, has all sorts of things that you'd consider for being a farmer. It just reminds me of The Simpsons with um when the kid when the kids go to the carnival and um the kids go up and I'm like Mom I want to try out this virtual gardening simulator what you couldn't even do my gardening well you know virtual gardening has a similar similar effect to real gardening on your mental health that's so yeah huh. one thing that's gonna be interesting with the whole virtual farming um uh, with the farming simulator could you see that. Could you see this explode? Like, um, you know how with esports being a growing, growing enterprise, like Farming Simulator, it could grow. Could you see this grow into a huge numbers or just a, eh, it's a fad? I think it's a bit of a fad. Like, not a fad, really. I think it'll keep going. I think it'll be steady. I don't think it will explode because it's fairly niche, but I think it will keep going. I think, um, I don't see any reason for it to stop being a thing. It'd be funny though. Imagine, um, the guys running, running a track, driving a tractor in real life while playing farming simulator. It's like, son, what you doing? Oh, I'm just playing farming simulator in a tractor. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, well, tractors are basically automated these days. So you really don't have to do a whole lot as a tractor driver. You have time to play games while you drive. You probably shouldn't, but people will do it anyway, probably. I reckon the hidden dangers are going to be, though, with uh, now, that farm, now that farming companies are joining into this esports nature, esports field. I can't see any. Can you? It would raise the demographics a bit, in the e- like making esports more com- more. Uh, open yeah it's uh good to see different genres heading into esports and age groups like you know how they always say like oh esports is a young man's game nobody can play it yeah you're just jealous that you're such a so young so old Uh, (laughs) yes i'm so old that my circuits are kind of rusting yep Although I wonder if the if the older generation can handle the trash talk the younger generation will put up on a farming simulator tournament. Hey, do you know how the older generation are with trash talk? Uh, they'll take a, they'll run it off their they'll run it off their backs. Uh, old people were savage. <laughs> if there is a whole ecosystem around farming simulator. So CH Products, who are known for making high-end uh, flight sticks, uh, flight yokes, rudder pedals, throttles, all of that, they sell uh, tractor controllers. No, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine playing uh, like Gran Turismo with a tractor sit with a tractor controls? I can't imagine it would go well. <laughs> it would not end well. <laughs> It'd be a lot of comedy. 
Yeah. But yeah, with the tractor controls, it must be pretty expensive to buy, though. Yeah, CH products aren't cheap. Yes, I'm trying to find their um, their tractor controller. Can't find it for a quick Google search, but it was a thing back when I bought mine. My uh, Not my contra- tractor controller, I bought a um, CH products flight stick. I think they would have been discontinued. Yeah, it looks like they might have. Would have been he- would have been fun though. Yeah, yeah. CH product stuff is really solid. Yeah, so they have um a lot of flight simulator stuff. Oh wait, maybe I'm not thinking of CH. Maybe it was SciTech. There we go. It was SciTech. Ah, okay. And looks like Logitech has one as well now. Yeah, I see it. Well, Logitech bought SciTech, so that makes sense. Yeah. So here's a link to um I'll throw it in the show notes. A link to Logitech's current farming simulator product. <laughs> that looks awesome. Yes. So I wonder if they use these for the um I hope they use these for the uh the esports mode. Can you imagine um all, before the esports event starts they get monitored be like, all right, no no suspicious button activity, nothing, nothing. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> That'll be a thing considering uh all the cheating in esports that's been happening recently. Hmm. That's true, that's true. Yeah, so um, what have you got for us today, DJ? Uh, I think I have a, I have a, a, a comment that could, uh, that could very well possibly destroy the comic book industry. Possibly. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, apparently the Punisher's uh, creator, um, Conway, has decided to uh, say that in order for the comic book industry to survive, Nuke all the comic books, the superhero comic books. Nuke them all. Nuke them all. Okay. <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> so his way of saying, his way of um, explaining it is by this. So uh, it's a long one, but he's saying this. So for a variety of self-enforcing reasons, publishers have defined the primary audience for mainstream comics as, in effect, long-term fans and potential collectors. Hence, fan-oriented, navel-gazing, tri-annual events, reboots, collector-oriented covers, etc. Every single one of these marketing ploys is designed solely, inverted commas, to appeal to existing readers, even reboots ostensibly attended to offer jumping on points to new readers, especially requires familiarity with previous iterations to provi- provide interest. New readers aren't welcomed by the existing creative strategy at the two mainstream publishers. If anything, new readers are actively discouraged by the publisher's frantic pursuit of motivated existing readership. The clubhouse is closed. Stay out. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so his so his solution to this is basically I would cancel every existing superhero comic and publish a limited new line for a middle grade le- readership, simplifying characters and storyline, and eliminate every event that requires more than passing film- familiarity with the basic simplified continuity, 10, 15 titles. Okay, sounds reasonable. Mm-hmm. And for existing readers, I would offer a separate high-priced graphic novel line with, with whatever expanded adult storyline creators and readers want to explore, but this would be separate. Not monthly, not the mainstreaming continued, and I would do everything, in the commas, 
possible to get monthly comics into supermarkets and movie theaters and Walmart and Target and Costco and up offer subscription services through Amazon. Pursue every alternate distribution avenue possible. Okay. So that's his way of um, dealing with the um, dealing with the current crisis in the comic book industry because because of Corona, a lot of comic books are kind of canceling and going down and in terms of distribution and whatnot. Yeah. You know, and I think um, I think this is all reasonable. I wouldn't I, mind seeing a lot of this happen. Yeah, yeah. And I will say this though: with the comic book, the pro- the problem with the comic book industry, I agree with him in terms of it's becoming like a the club. Ha- it's coming coming becoming a clubhouse thing where oh you're you know you're just a new fan, get out kind of thing. The problem with Marvel and DC, the mainstream comics, is that. They always recycle the characters. Like we have Thor, for example. We have male Thor. Then we had the female Thor. Then we had the, uh, the and we went back to the male Thor. And I was like, ah, oh, what the hell is going on, man? I mean, seriously. And then and uh, what else? What was there recently? Oh, then there was the new Warriors. Oh, that was a horrible, horrible thing. Well, at least they were trying new things. Which is more than can be said for rebooting Spider-Man for the 50th time. <laughs> but here's the problem with the new Warriors. They were introducing new characters while piggybacking on an existing franchise. That was the stu- that was the problem. And there were and the other problem with the main comics, like with DC and Marvel, it was that they were trying to put in real world issues into a fantasy element, which is very annoying. <laughs> Well, that's what fantasy and sci-fi is for. Yeah, but I get the whole fantasy and sci-fi, but trying to combine real-world elements into a fantasy novel, it's kind of like it, it it's hit and miss. Like it worked with a couple of comic titles, like, for example, Watchmen and um, uh, Marvel Civil War. It worked at, for a time, but then as that whole... Um, as a whole trope been used over and over again, it kind of it kind of wears down the readers, and it's it takes away the escapism. Like normally, we, we read comics and watch anime and stuff for the escapism. We don't want to be constantly reminded of the real world issues every time. You know, the comics have been about real world issues ever since they started. You know, X Men are about civil rights. The X Men was just basically um, a re- retelling of the Crucible. Yeah, so it goes even further back. These are all real world issues. But yeah, that's the that's the problem with um, comic books in general. Like it's always the constant rebooting, the constant um, events, which is basically okay. We're gonna put a real world event into this one just to mimic the fact that oh yes, we are. We want to be. Um, we, we want to be part of. The, we want to get rid of the. Um, Get rid of the escapism. Oh, and also, it's always the fact that um, uh, I lost my train of thought now. Oh, uh, oh! I uh, bet okay. if you went back to your favorite escapism comics, you'd find a lot more real events than you think that you think weren't in there. If you went back and read them again, not necessarily. I mean, I, I, I for myself, I read more manga more than the um than than the actual comics. Weeb. <laughs> yes, call me weeb as you want, but the manga industry does more in terms of they're more they're more riskier they take more risks they te- they um they explore more they don't do what marvel and um dc does which is basically let's just let's just put in a real world event into this and let's let's see how it 
how it pans out. And so they it's much take more, more risks with the 50th iteration of I'm a nerd and I have 15 girls chasing after me. No, it's more of the I'm a superhero. I want the whole, I, I want to see how the whole world um how how the whole world um reacts kind of thing like in um with american comics for example they don't show the whole violence they, they don't show violence full on in in the mainstream comics but if you see like a japanese manga or something man it's just full on like it's full on dangerous and gory and stuff you're like yeah <laughs> like that's where the indie comics is also good at like um you see comics comics to movies for example they're good at this type of thing like they exp- they um take risks. They take um new avenues and stuff. And they don't they don't go the safer route kind of thing. Like this is where the indie comics are good at. That's what I'm trying to point out, Professor. Do you ever stop talking? Yeah, that was my that was me stopping talking. Sorry. <clears throat> so if you could nuke all the superheroes and save just one of them, which one would you save? Ooh, ooh. If it were up to me, I would save Spawn. Spawn comics. It's it, it's it, it's one it, it's one of my favorites, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like traditional mainstream comics, but yeah, yeah. Okay. Yourself, what which what would you um what which hero would you save? I don't know. I don't like any of them. <laughs> but let's just say, like, let, let, let's say for for the sake of for the for just for the just for fun, what which one would you want to save? I really don't know. Yeah, fair enough. I can tell you it probably wouldn't be anyone who's had a movie in the past 10 years. <laughs> yes. T- 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 uh, any movie that that's involved the great big mouse would not would 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 definitely be want to be nuked. Great big mouse? What? Mickey. Oh. Mickey's not big- a superhero. <laughs> well, he's turning into a superhero. How? What are Mickey's powers? Uh, but he's rich. That's his. That's his so best. So he's Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, in a sense. Well, no, Iron Man. See, Iron Man's. Iron Man has a. Iron Man's basically. He's rich and he can create armor. Mickey Mouse is basically. He's rich, but he doesn't create anything. Okay. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Anyway, what have you been playing, DJ? Uh, I've been playing Among Us. Yes, I'm addicted to that game. Have you won, though? A couple of times, actually. As the infected? Yeah, as the imposter, yeah, yeah. Surprising. Although the one of the uh, modes I've been playing is called, it's called the hide-and-seek mode. That's been fun. How does that one work? So basically, the, inf- the imposter... Gets let um doesn't have any vision at all, but the victims get all the vision, and okay. the movement speed for everyone is very very slow. So the imposter runs around until they run into a survivor. Victim. Yeah, so kind of like every horror movie. Okay, so how many points do you give that mode? 
Well, I would give that five out of five. And I've been playing Mario 35. Mario 35 is a Mario Battle Royale. <laughs> it's what? the Yeah, so it's Super Mario Brothers, uh, the very first one, with 35 players. And when you defeat an enemy on your screen, it goes to the other player's screens. So the goal is to be the player who survives the longest. And eventually, uh, when you get down to a few players left and people are, you know, all sending the enemies at each other, you get some ridiculous um, stacks of enemies, just endless waves of Goombas. <laughs> so it's not like Fortnite where uh, you get to create stuff and, and, and shoot people at the same time? No, there's no building, no shooting. You just play Mario and you try not to die. But when you kill the enemies, they go to the enemy screen. So there's an advantage to killing the enemies. There's also the um, amount of, well, you have a time limit. So you can only play for, you know, you need to kill enemies to earn more more time. You need to um, collect power-ups, give you more time. So, yeah, there's a lot of elements to it that make it, Sort of um, sort of complex, but still really simple. But it works. So it's kind of like Mario Kart in a way, with the whole power-ups and whatnot. No, it's just Mario with the power-ups. Oh, okay. You know, the, uh, the mushroom, the fire flower. Yeah, yeah. I give it a four out of five. I'm pretty hooked. <laughs> What's the biggest flaw you've encountered in that game, though? Um, I'm too impatient. <laughs> I keep getting myself in trouble by trying to run too quickly. <laughs> so we'll just have a quick advertisement and come back with the shout-outs. On the 28th of September 2020, Robert England's Nightmare Blend launched. Robert England is known for playing Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street and created a blend of coffee with dead sled coffee. So the uh, description says, Hey, it will keep you up and thus safe from any kings of nightmares you might encounter. Oh, no, sorry, that's from the uh, article. So the description is, Robert England's Nightmare Blend is a perfect blend of high-quality, single-origin, robust of Vietnamese coffee and a blend of Arabica beans from South America, long sentence, all which are ground down to a Turkish-style grind. Robusta coffee is the traditional bean of Vietnam and has nearly twice the caffeine of Arabica coffee beans. The finely ground blend of the Vietnamese Robusta and South American blend allow not only a bolder flavor, but a naturally stronger caffeine content so you can stay awake and stay safe from the king of nightmares. <laughs> I feel like all the actors are getting their um, their products these days. It's either an alcohol or coffee or... Well, they have to supplement their income that, that, that COVID that hit, has hit Hollywood. Yeah, I guess that helps. I mean, what's the, near, what's the next best thing now? Like all these um, Hollywood stars are doing podcasts. Yeah, and on the 29th of September, the first person ever cured from HIV passed away. Timothy Ray Brown, the first person cured of HIV, had a bone marrow transplant. So this eradicated his HIV by completely killing off and removing and replacing the infected cells. Uh, the problem is that the it's an extremely invasive procedure and that the... Uh, um, it's only done in cases of severe leukemia because the treatment for HIV is much safer. HIV is relatively treatable these days without um, just by medication, without ex the extremely invasive surgery. So uh, Brown was clear of HIV for more than a decade, but had a relapse of his leukemia in the past year. It spread to his spine and brain um, until he passed away on the 29th of September in 
Palm Springs, California. And on the 29th of September 2020, Farmville has announced that they will shut down. On the 31st of December, the original Farmville will be closing. This is because Farmville was released in Flash, and Zynga doesn't care to port it over to HTML5. They are releasing Farmville free. I can't wait to see how much worse they make it. Wait, how? So many microtransactions. Uh, <laughs> even more. <laughs> oh. I bet there's going to be even more microtransactions. Oh, oh! Now that you mentioned the whole microtransactions, can you imagine in the um, farming farming simulator tournaments if you're like, would you like to purchase a microtransaction? <laughs> <laughs> no, farming sim doesn't have microtransactions, luckily. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. And for the remembrances, on the 29th of September 1913, Rudolf Christian Carl Diesel, the inventor and mechanical engineer who invented the diesel engine. He worked on uh, refrigeration in Berlin, expanded into steam, where he, uh, he accidentally blew up a steam engine, which almost killed him, and then um, progressed into diesel engines. This greatly improved, improved the efficiency of the engine. 90% of the energy in a steam engine is wasted. Um, but uh, a diesel engine is significantly more efficient. I think it's on the order of 70% efficient. But uh, on the evening of the 29th of September 1913, uh, Diesel boarded the steamer SS Dresden in Antwerp on his way to uh, London. He took dinner on board, then retired to his cabin, but was never seen again. He vanished at the age of 55. And there's a bit of a conspiracy. Was it a suicide? Was it a murder? One could say he vanished into thin air. Well, they did find a body with his... uh, ID on it. Ah. <laughs> yeah, Wait, it was <laughs> 10 days later another boat found a body and the uh. body was too uh, decomposed to sort of be worth retrieving, but uh. they found his um, you know, his wallet and stuff on his body huh. and so yeah. It um it looks like they did find his body but couldn't retrieve it apart from his ID uh and I wonder what um I you know I wonder if it was a, a suicide or a murder. Hmm. On the 29th of September 1927, Willem Eindhoven, a Dutch physician and physiologist, he invented the first practical electrocardiogram in 1895 and released the Nobel received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1924 for it. So it was known that the beating of the heart produced electrical currents, but instruments of the time couldn't accurately measure it without directly touching the heart. So um, Willem was able to figure out a a method of reading the heart's electrical signals through the skin. He also produced a um, prototype using a string galvanometer, using a thin filament of wire passing between two very strong electromagnets. When the current passes through, the, uh, the string would move, and a light would create a shadow, forming a curve showing the movement of the string. The original machine required water cooling, five people to operate it, and weighed 270 kilograms. That is a lot of weight. On the 29th of September 2013, Harold Melvin Agnew, an American physicist unrelated to the U.S. Vice President Spyro Agnew, uh, Harold who was a scientific observer on the Hiroshima mission and was the third director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Los Alamos, sorry. He joined the Metallurgical Laboratory at the University of Chicago in 1942 and helped build the Chicago Pile 1, the first nuclear reactor. Agnew also worked on the Castle Bravo test in 1954 
which I think was the largest American nuclear weapon test. Yeah, so Castle Bravo was the uh, largest American test with 15 megatons. Oh. Yeah. And um, well, it turns out Castle Bravo um, covered the nearby islands in radiation, and they didn't bother evacuating the residents. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, the residents got sick. Jeez. Now, there are bigger bombs these days, but most uh, bigger bombs don't get tested because um, there are now test ban treaties. So a lot of uh, modern nuclear bombs are theoretical yield, and I hope we never find out what yield they actually have. For those curious, which is the most powerful human-made explosive? Uh, the, The most powerful nuclear weapon is the Saar Bomber. Yep. (laughs) Which was planned for 100 megatons. And they realized, no, there's no bloody way we're going to drop that and fly away from it. (laughs) So they cut it back to 50 megatons. So um, during the Hiroshima bombing mission, the Great Artiste, piloted by Charles Sweeney, carried um, Agnew, Alvarez, and Johnston. After they dropped the gauges, they made a sharp turn to the right to not get caught in the uh, blast, but they still got badly shaken up by it. He brought along a movie camera and took the only existing movies of the Hiroshima bomb from the air. He died of chronic lymphocytic leukemia at the age of 92 in Solana Beach, California. I wonder if... um. So there's a couple of events in his history where he received decent doses of radiation. Uh, it says here that while they were testing um, Geiger counters, he got a high dose of radiation. So he did die of cancer, but it took him until the age of 92, which is uh, frankly lucky. There were cases of, I think some people were um, injected uranium into the system. I think. Yeah, there was, there was a whole lot of crazy yeah. uh, science going on. I mean, they, there are places where um, before, you know, radioactive bath water would be good for you. Oh, no. Yeah, there's a theory that low levels of radiation triggers your immune system to um, basically keep it keep it busy so that it uh, sort of it's always ready. But, um, yeah, that's very tenuous and it's mostly debunked. Here we go, the human plutonium injection experiments. Uh, yeah, there's also a bunch of um, really unfortunate people who were left on the islands or in the bush where they were testing. Uh, Australia's example, Australia had nuclear tests done by the UK in the uh, Woomera testing range. And I think the town was called Maralinga. A, um, it's an Aboriginal settlement in, in the Woomera area. The residents will have cancer and leukemia from the radiation. But uh, that does also mean Australia is the only country nuclear bombed by the UK. On to the famous birthdays. On the 29th of September, 1803, Jacques Charles Francois Sturm, who was a French mathematician. He discovered a theorem that bears his name in 1829 concerning real root isolation, the determination of the number and localization of the real roots of a polynomial. In 1826, with his colleague John Daniel Colladon, Sturm helped make the first experimental determination of the speed of sound in water. The asteroid 31043 Sturm is named for him, and he is one of the 72 names engraved at the Eiffel Tower. On the 29th of September, 1899, Laszlo Biro, Laszlo jo- Jose Biro, born Laszlo Joseph Sch- Schweiger, 
was a Hungarian Argentine inventor who patented the first modern ballpoint pen. The first, um, sorry, that's the first commercially sex- successful point pen. The first one was invented by John Loud 50 years earlier, which um, makes me wonder, like, imagine if that had been a successful one and we called it the Loud instead of the Biro. <laughs> That would not end well. <laughs> like, hey, can I borrow a loud, please? <laughs> what? <laughs> so Byro noticed that newspaper ink dried quickly, leaving the paper dry and smudge free, but that the ink wouldn't work in his fountain pen. So he developed a um, ballpoint and showed it off at the Budapest International Fair in 1931. This was developed with his brother, Georgie. On the 29th of September, 1981, Enrico Fermi, which um, he was an Italian, later naturalized American physicist and creator of the Chicago Pile 1. So we just mentioned um, the Chicago Pile 1 with Harold Agnew, who studied under Fermi. Fermi is called the architect of the nuclear age and the architect of the atomic bomb. He excelled in both theoretical physics and experimental physics was awarded the 1938 Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on induced radioactivity by neutron bombardment and the discovery of transuranium elements. He filed several patents for the use of nuclear power, which were taken over by the US government. There's a bunch of stories about that stuff. I wonder what the, uh, the US government's keeping secret. Like conspiracy theory time. What uh, nuclear power or nuclear developments are they keeping secret because they declared it national security? Now, do you know the Fermi paradox, DJ? Vaguely, vaguely. It's I know it's um in terms of paradoxes, there'll be a different universe kind of effect. No, it's a different thing actually. Oh, okay. So the Fermi paradox is um was named after Enrico, and it defines it's about the contradiction between the um, lack of evidence for alien life and the likelihood that alien life exists. So the um, theory is that there's so many stars and with planets that should be Earth-like, which are older than the sun, so should have intelligent life. Those uh, life forms should be able to travel, you know, interstellar travel because we're almost there and we're only, you know, a few hundred thousand years old, um, if that. And even with sublight speed travel, the Milky Way can be traversed in a few million years, considering uh, the galaxy is billions of years old. Aliens should already be here, but nobody's seen the aliens. So where are they? Mm. Yeah, so there's a few uh, reasons. So um, there's the Drake equation, which is a formula for calculating basically how much alien life there should be based on a couple of inputs. Um, the the problem is not knowing the exact values of the inputs means that you can use the Drake equation to support or disprove the Fermi paradox. But the main theory is that there's a great filter, which is at some point in the development of interstellar life, there is an event that occurs that uh, prevents that life from growing further. So does it happen? Does it turn out that it's really hard for life to get started? Does it turn out that multicellular life is really rare? 
does it turn out that intelligent life is rare because it tends to wipe itself out with nuclear bombs or climate change? Does it turn out that there's something else going on? It's a really interesting topic with a lot of really interesting theories. I recommend having a look at it. As I say, the theory, dark forest theory, that there are tons of aliens all around us, but they don't want to talk to us for some reason. <laughs> so literally every horror, uh, Hollywood horror film. Yeah. Are they not talking to us because there's something worse out there listening? And they're all sitting there listening to us broadcasting, hello, is anyone out there? And they're all like, shut up! <laughs> shut up, they'll hear you! <laughs> the little green man and the, and the satellites! <laughs> yeah, so, you know, where is the life? Yeah. Fermi is one of the 16 scientists with elements named after him. On the 29th of September 1925, uh, we have Paul B. McCready Jr., an American aeronautical engineer. He founded Aerovironment and designed the first human-powered aircraft and won the first Kremer Prize. He, uh, his philosophy was do more with less. In 1956, he became the first pilot to become the world-soaring champion. Sorry, the first American pilot to become the world-soaring champion. Uh, he developed a bunch of techniques and devices for determining the best speed to fly a glider. So in the 1970s, he guaranteed a loan, which failed and left him in debt, which um, was the motivation he needed to compete for the Kremer Prize for human-powered flight. With Dr. Peter B.S. Sisserman, he created a human-powered aircraft, the Gossamer Condor. They flew for seven minutes while they completed the required figure-out course, winning the first prize in 1977. Kremer then upped the price for another 100000 for the first human-powered crossing of the English Channel. McCready built the uh, Condor's successor, the Gossamer Albatross, and won the second prize. And for the events of interest, on the 29th of September 1885, the world's first practical public electric tramway was opened in Blackpool, England. This line ran from Cocker Street to Dean Street on the Blackpool Promenade. It was the first practical electric tramway in the world. Um, six years after Werner von Siemens first demonstrated electric traction. I'm assuming um, Werner von Siemens was the founder of the Siemens company. I hope so too. So the, um, the Blackpool line was a conduit line carrying electricity below and between the tracks. This apparently was successful in town and city centers, although I'd hate to think what would happen if you stepped in the wrong spot. Oh. That was a problem so close to the coast where seawater would blow across the tracks and fill up the conduits. This also carried sand and other contaminants. On the 29th of September 1940, two Avro Ansons collide in midair over New South Wales, Australia, remain locked together and land safely. So these two aircraft, uh, Avro Ansons of the number two service flying training school, remained locked together after colliding. The <laughs> both navigators bailed out. The pilot of the lower Anson bailed out because he'd uh, been injured by the propeller hitting the, um, <clears throat> hitting the cockpit. And the pilot of the upper Anson worked out that with no throttle control, because the throttle, uh, the engines of the upper aircraft failed. So he was flying entirely on the power of the bottom aircraft. He figured out that he could steer using his controls <laughs> and made an emergency landing in the paddock. That's got to be a great miracle. Yeah. So the pilot said, uh, well, sir, I did everything we've been told to do in a forced landing. Land as close as possible to habitation or a farmhouse. And if possible, <laughs> land into the wind. I did all that. There's the farmhouse, and I did a couple of circuits and landed into the wind. She was pretty heavy on the controls, though. <laughs> I did what you asked. That's what I did. 
that's like the best way of saying it was it was like that when i got here yeah don't blame me so uh he saved what would today be 1.7 million pounds worth of military hardware and was credited with avoiding uh, the nearby town of Brocklesby. The top aircraft was repaired and returned to flight service and the lower was used as an instructional airframe. Everybody survived the incident. On the 29th of September 2004, Bert Rutan's Ansari Spaceship One performed a successful spaceflight, the first of two required to win the Ansari X Prize. It was the first competitive flight in the Ansari X-Prize competition to demonstrate a non-governmental reusable crewed spacecraft. It um, suffered some issues and didn't meet the expected performance, but it did exceed 100 kilometers, making it a successful flight. Spaceship One is a really interesting plane because it's carried on the back of another aircraft, a white knight. And then when they arrive at a certain altitude, Spaceship One detaches and then shoots off into into space. The, uh, the spacecraft started rolling rapidly 50 seconds into the burn while traveling at Mach 2.7. This was probably due to or at least discovered by pilot error, but the pilot was not concerned and allowed the burn to continue. He said, I thought it was kind of cool. Oh, by the way, it's Mark, not Match. Yes, I do realize that. <laughs> Had a bit of a tongue twist. And on the 29th of September 2010, the fall premiered in the Philippines. The plot is a research expedition to the Arctic discovers that a melting polar cap has released a deadly prehistoric parasite. <laughs> so, you know, that's just so many um, sci-fi movies. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's... a. Uh, yeah, like calling it the four and having it set in the Arctic and being a parasite makes it sound like it's a knockoff of the thing. <laughs> Here's an uh, so I've read I, there was more to this plot, the storyline. Interesting enough, it goes by this: a remote uh, rem, a remote Arctic um, research station for ecology ecology students discover the real horror of global warming is not the melting ice cap, but what's frozen within it. A prehistoric parasite released from the carcass of a woolly mammoth upon the unsuspecting students who are forced to quarantine and make necessary sacrifices or risk infecting the rest of the world. Well, uh, judging by the last year, we all know how that would end. <laughs> it's an interesting fact, though. This movie is inspired by the real concern of global warming unveiling ancient lethal supervira. Numerous giant um, vira has already been discovered by scientists in the Siberian permafrost. Yeah, already a thing. Um, Deer in Russia, I think, are dying of anthrax because ancient anthrax is being uncovered by uh, permafrost for... Oh, goody. So I saw saw a horror movie coming to life. Yeah. Yep. Uh, crud. But that's all we have for today. Do you have anything to add, DJ? Uh, they can. Uh, all I can say is they can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, iTunes, Spotify. Uh, they can also find us on that's not Canada.com where we're an archive of our old episodes. Uh, they can also find us on Pod Hero. Yes, on Pod Hero, you can support us for five dollars a month, where your subscription is split among the podcasts that you listen to. They can also check out other, um, other podcasts besides ours, uh, so, such as Whiskey and Whiskers. Sounds like a really cool name. It is. I like the alliteration. And what's mm-hmm. that about? So this one talks about video games, movies, um, UFC, hangovers, and physics and other stuff. 
while drinking whiskey, apparently. Yep. So uh, look after yourselves, stay hydrated, and we'll see you next week. See you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.